Hello and welcome to The Curator on Monaco 24 with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Over the next 60 minutes, I will bring you some of the very best interviews and reports from the past week of coverage here on Monaco 24. This week, we find out more about Turkey's opposition candidate, Kemal Kilisdaroglu. It is usually the case that people who most want power are those who should be least trusted with it. Kemal Kilicdarolu's pitch is essentially that vice versa is also the case. Plus, we preview Monaco's brand new travel show, The Concierge. It's a public space on which life unfolds, as much for those who live in the area as it is for those just passing through. All that and much more in the next hour, here on The Curator, with me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. And we start the show asking, who is Kemal Kilicdaroglu? An opposition candidate has been selected for the upcoming Turkish presidential election. And Andrew Muller will explain to us who he is and how he differs from President Erdogan. This May 14th, Turks will vote in presidential and parliamentary elections. A footnote, that is the likely date as of this broadcast. There had been some talk of postponing following last month's earthquakes, but the current plan appears to be to proceed as scheduled. There are a great many issues in play, as is to be expected of a country of 85 million people occupying a geostrategic bridge between Europe and the Middle East, experiencing an ongoing economic crisis, sort of at war on a couple of fronts, and recovering from a devastating natural disaster. But these are all absorbed into one key question. Should President Recep Tayyip Erdogan be given another term? This week, Turks found out what the option is. Sayın Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, bizim Cumhurbaşkanı adayımız olarak... The option is Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, who Turkey's opposition parties, who agree among themselves about little beyond their dislike of President Erdogan, have nudged forward as a unity candidate. The 74-year-old is a well-known quantity in Turkish politics, having been a member of parliament since 2002 and leader of the opposition since 2010. Whatever complaints Turks may reasonably have about the state of their country's politics heading into this election, they will not be able to harumph, as citizens of democracies often do, that they are not being presented with a meaningful choice. It is hard to imagine how more completely antithetical to Erdogan's gruff, belligerent, authoritarian nationalism Kilicdaroglu could be. Kilicdaroglu leads Turkey's Republican People's Party, and as such, choosing Kilicdaroglu as Erdogan's opponent is an implicit rebuke to Erdogan even before Kilicdaroglu says or does anything. The Republican People's Party, or CHP, is the party founded by Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, who also founded the modern state of Turkey in the years after World War I, and who, it can be safely imagined, has spent much of Erdogan's time in power revolving grumpily in his Ankara mausoleum. Ataturk was a modernist and a secularist who wanted to free Turkey from the rule of decadent and or autocratic sultans. He brought them freedom. The meaning of his name was father of the Turks. 
He won their victories in the Dardanelles. He led them in successful battle against the Greeks in Asia Minor. He was their hero. And time will show how the passing of a dictator may affect the course of history. Erdogan is a populist and an Islamist who has built himself a thousand-room palace in Ankara and an opulent seaside palazzo near Marmaris. Though Ataturk remains officially revered in Turkey, his portrait is a common fixture in shops and restaurants, he beams from every banknote, it has been well noted that Erdogan has been reluctant to acknowledge Ataturk any further than he absolutely must. A necessarily blunt distinction between the two leaders might hold that Erdogan regards Turkey's secular democracy much as Ataturk regarded Turkey's religious tradition, i.e. as something you have to put up with or work around. Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu, Ataturk's latest heir as head of the CHP, has little in common with his predecessor but a first name, though the fact that Ataturk's philosophy is often shorthanded as Kemalism should infuriate Erdogan to an amusing degree. Ataturk was a swashbuckling military officer who led from the front in defending Gallipoli in 1915. Turkey's modern history would be unimaginably different had a fragment of shrapnel not been stopped by the pocket watch Ataturk wore over his heart. Kilic is a former economist and civil servant, so proverbially mild-mannered that he is referred to by Turkish media as Gandhi Kemal, a likening of his softly spoken approach to that of the Mahatma, a figure to whom Erdogan has been extremely infrequently compared. Nevertheless, Kilitsterolu is no quivering milk toast. He has picked public fights with business folk who he accuses of looting the state and their alleged accessories in government, occasionally even turning up at government offices with an entourage of delighted media demanding that whichever minister come out from under their desk and account for themselves. <laughs> Kilitsterolu has been volubly critical of the response of Erdogan's government to the recent earthquakes and of its indulgence of the lax building standards which contributed to the death toll. As to the big question, can he win, a couple of early polls reckon he's a chance. But opposing President Erdogan is not easy. Since becoming Prime Minister in 2003, Erdogan has embarked on a Putinesque purging of dissent. One of the reasons Kilitsdorolu got the nod is that the long-presumptive rival for this election, Istanbul Mayor Ekrem Imamoglu, is presently struggling to stay out of prison, following his conviction last year on manifestly absurd charges of calling Turkish election officials idiots. Accepting what amounted to the nomination of Turkey's anybody-but-Erdogan factions, Kilitsdorolu promised prosperity, peace and joy. More meaningfully, he spoke of effectively de-Erdoganizing Turkey's current political settlement. He wants to hand back the executive powers that Erdogan absorbed into the presidency and return Turkey to a parliamentary system, its head of state once more a largely ceremonial figure. It is usually the case that people who most want power are those who should be least trusted with it. Kamal Kilitsdorolu's pitch is essentially that vice versa is also the case. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And now a complete change of tone. It's a highlight from our show Monaco on Sunday. This time our host Monaco's Emma Nelson spoke to our senior Asia editor Fiona Wilson from Tokyo. Poor Fiona, she does have hay fever. I feel like spring is finally around the corner here. So that's how it's looking. Very so it suddenly turned very, very warm here. So um, 
Yes, I've got the hay fever sniffles. Um, so <laughs> I'm clutching a tissue, but uh, apart from that, all good. Well, thank you for your courage in, in broadcasting with the sniffles. That's that's always an uphill struggle. So thank you. we're very, very grateful. It seems so strange that, you know, we've just heard from Tyler in Marbella where he's looking out at the med and there's, there's the sun and there's going to be a little bit of warmth. Uh, here in the United Kingdom, I think, I don't think we've quite emerged yet from monochrome yet. So we are absolutely ready, I think, to finish with winter. I think many of us are bored with it. So what's the spirit like in Japan where you have, OK, you have the sniffles, but you have a little bit more, you know, the sun greets you a little bit earlier every morning with a bit more warmth? Yeah, no, it's 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 actually looking rather nice. The park near where the office is, we there is a little, a small patch of plum blossom at the moment and people are ready to get out there and picnic. So as you know, you know, the Hanami, the big cherry blossom season, that's still to come. It's coming a little bit earlier. We're all following the day. It's coming a bit earlier than usual this year. Um, and, you know, people are ready. So they're already out today. People are picnicking under these these early blossoms, deep pink blossoms that people love so much. And I mean, you could hardly move for photographers, kids doing photo shoots. Um, it was quite a scene. The trouble is, though, is that that beauty that we're all terribly excited about and everyone is trying to get a plane out to go and see this before all the tourists come back again. Um, you're all sneezing and coughing and spluttering in the background and everyone's got goggles and masks on again. It seems like there's two parallel nar- narratives here. Well, it's such a strange situation. So every year, it, you know, in February, it really kicks off. End of February, you get this cedar pollen that just is released en masse and 40% of the Japanese population is suddenly sniffing, yeah, as you say, wearing goggles. I did see someone on a bike wearing what looked like uh, science lab goggles uh, the other day. You know, we're spraying our faces, we're all wearing masks. Um, this, this hay fever, and it's far worse than usual this year. So in Tokyo, they reckon there's twice as much pollen as usual. It was very hot last summer, and that's what dictates how much pollen there will be in hay fever season. I, I, I never used to suffer, and now um, I'm I'm definitely one of the 40%, so I now feel full sympathy. I think I ignored it before, um, but uh, no, very much uh, uh, in, in sort of deep now, so... How boring! In what should be an absolutely wonderful time of life, when everything's coming back out again. Um, Fiona, I've got David Badanis uh, signalling that he wants to join into the into the game. David, what do you want to say? I'm very excited by your pollen, and I think uh, you don't realize <laughs> what what is happening inside your nose. It turns out poor pollen uh, escapes from the tree. It has a brief moment of life, and what it wants is sex. And when it lands on the <laughs> mucosal <laughs> membranes in our nose, it thinks, "I am happy, baby. Come to mama." So the pollen. And what's happening is the pollen is having a very happy moment. Your body up Fiona's, is up Fiona's nose. Up Fiona's nose, and now the, your body is saying this is really highly inappropriate, Absolutely. and pours out uh, histamines and all sorts of things like that, which produces an irritation. So, what you, as the large person observing, is like somebody in a helicopter over a restaurant where about eighty-five million bad dates are going on at the exact same moment. Fiona, it's all going on up your nose. <laughs> I'm absolutely on the floor laughing here. It's not just in my nose. I mean, they're having an absolute party in my eyes as well. So it's a uh, full orgy in my face. Oh, Fiona, uh, keep, it, keep it away from the children. Um, after that, is it actually affecting the way that people are going about, you know, given the fact that it's all kicking off in, in Japan in so many different ways? Is it actually stopping people from going about their lives? I mean, suddenly now that we know what's really going on, I'm surprised anybody goes outside. 
Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I, you know, I, as I was saying, I feel like I've developed this uh, hay fever quite recently. And apparently, you know, twice as many people suffer in Tokyo, you know, maybe compared to 20 years ago. So it is worse. And, and, and you know, people have worked out, you know, what it means to the economy. Productivity is a bit lower. People feel a bit groggy sometimes, partly because of the medication they're taking. Now I feel guilty saying I feel bad. I should be, you know, happy to be part of nature's cycle, obviously. But um, <laughs> it is, it's a little bit tough. And I have to say, it is very noticeable this year. You, will, you would go past, a, say, a, a black car and you'll see a little film of uh, yellow over it at the moment. So it's very noticeable this year. I must stop whinging, I feel. No, it's, it's, um, you're completely within, within your rights to do so. David, I'm going to ask you this question. I'm not entirely sure why I'm asking this question. Um, Fiona says that the, the, the pollen is a lot more active than it was. Was twenty years ago. What what has what has prompted this 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 fruity behaviour by pollen? I, I I have to think it's the um, uh, the Obama administration releasing reducing the the moral certitude in our society. That's at least I'm guessing what Fox News would say. Okay, thank you very much indeed for that, Constantine. You wanted you wanted um, to add something? Fiona, here here in England, um, the damson trees or in bushes are in full blossom, so you get bursts of white with no pollen. Should I add um, in a sort of bleak monochromic landscape so i suppose that's our who would have thought this is all gone this is all gone very wrong sorry fiona you were going to say something (laughs) i was going to say it's just the idea of the monochromatic sort of landscape because actually you know you really feel now that you know tourism's really kicked off cherry blossoms around the corner you know it, it just feels like it'll be no time till um till summer's here and of course you know this point in japan it's the end of the school year so everything's sort of feeling like it's coming to an end. And then 1st of April, everything starts up again. The new financial year, university term starts, school year starts. So, um, you know, it feels like a lot of change. And, you know, th- th- by the time the kids go back to school this April, um, they won't have to wear masks for the first time in a long time. So they'll finally discover what their, their classmates actually look like. You are listening to the curator of Monaco 24. And now a highlight of the show I host every week, The Stack. A very special one now with Radhika Jones, editor-in-chief of Vanity Fair. She tells me all about the new Hollywood issue and she also celebrates five years at the helm of the title. I would say five years in it. It's been really exhilarating. There's been, I think whenever you are in the magazine business, the storytelling business to be broader about it. You benefit from times of change and disruption and unpredictability because it gives you a lot of inroads to examine the kind of the world that we live in and the culture that we live in. And the last five years obviously have been extremely eventful, unpredictable in all of the areas that we cover at Vanity Fair. We obviously cover Hollywood and you know, you and I are going to talk a little bit about the Hollywood issue today, which is great. We cover politics, we cover tech, and in all of these worlds, there's been a lot of upheaval. There's been a lot of positive change and, and progressive change. And then there's also been a lot of scandal and threat and obviously a global pandemic and just things that we never saw coming. And so five years ago when I took the job, you know, I had an idea of the kinds of stories that I wanted to tell and that, and I believed very deeply and still believe in the power of a title like Vanity Fair to really put people on your radar. Like our readers want to know what's next. They want to know what's exciting. They want to know what's changing. That's our job. We take it very seriously, but we also have a lot of fun doing it. So just to be able to showcase new talent, talent that's exciting, you know, actors, musicians, artists, 
but also to dig deeper into sort of the political and cultural issues that shape us and shape the way we live. That's been incredible and it continues to be incredible. I mean, we're, what we're doing now is kind of using all of the momentum that we have in terms of our journalism and our photography and our storytelling to kind of broaden our scope and be able to tell those stories in a compelling way in documentaries and limited series and video and on TikTok and sort of all the places where we might find people who love Vanity Fair. So it's been very exciting. It feels great to be five years in and feel like, okay, we have a roadmap. We know what our readers love. We know how we love to guide them and challenge them too. And that's fun. And, you know, we're here to kind of inform and entertain, but also hopefully to be a leader in the culture and to lead the conversation. And Radhika, of course, one thing I've noticed in the last five years as well, I mean, the digital presence of Vanity Fair, for me, keeps on growing. I've seen mm-hmm. more and more of that, which is fantastic. And and it's quite interesting you mentioned that there's the Vanity Fair studios, which mm-hmm. I would love to find out more about it. But tell us about the importance of the printed edition, because I have in my hands the Hollywood issue, which is an issue which I very much look forward to see every year especially because I find it quite different year on year, mm-hmm. the vibe, you mm-hmm. know, I think last year was quite yeah. technocolor. This this year is a bit more kind of decadent, it's a bit clubby, which I, I also enjoyed very much. Tell us about the printed edition and its remaining importance in a world that's becoming more digital, but there's some lovers for print as well. No, totally. I, I firmly believe that we can have both. We can have all of it. And that's a great thing. That's a gift. It's wonderful to work at a magazine that still has a print presence because there is something very satisfying about working toward a deadline. You know, the internet is vast and allows for much freedom and allows for very specific timing and a lot of range of voice and genre. A print magazine has more limitations. You have to work within the boundaries of the page. You have to work within a deadline. The printer can't just print anytime you're ready. You know, you come together as a team and you have to think about how to best use your imagery and your text and everything in that format. And what we find is that it kind of focuses us, you know, a a print cover, it appears in print, we have it in front of us, but it also obviously has a huge digital life. So I feel almost like the print can be the kernel of an issue or of a topic or something that we're, we're examining, but it also has an incredible life beyond the print platform. And so it can be a gateway for people, you know, that, that you can catch a glimpse of something when you're traveling or at an airport, you see the cover of a magazine, you're like, oh, what is this? And the color pops out or the, you know, the expression of the person who's been photographed or whatever it is. And it takes you into that world. And Print works the same way digitally. You know, when we post a cover on Instagram, we're sort of getting that feedback in real time. And so print is very much part of our portfolio. But to me, it's an opportunity rather than a limitation because it just it focuses us. It gives us kind of in the case of the Hollywood issue year over year, as you're saying, you know, it gives us an opportunity to kind of keep reinventing something so that we we have readers who have collected it for decades And we know we want to encourage that kind of loyalty, but we also know that they like to be surprised and they look forward to that issue every year. And so it's a fun challenge for us to figure out, okay, what are we going to do this year that's going to feel fresh and modern and different? And one of the things I love about this year's Hollywood issue is that we decided to showcase 
a younger generation of talent. And they were all, I mean, they're incredibly accomplished actors. And it, it was amazing to kind of put this group together and realize how much they already have accomplished and how much they have yet still in front of them. But also what was fun for us was that none of them had ever been on our Hollywood cover before. So it was truly a group of sort of debut presence for this cast of actors. And my hope is that, you know, years from now, we will look back at this cover and think, oh, yeah, like these were the stars of the moment, but also the stars of tomorrow. And they have so much charisma and so much presence. And so it was really fun to kind of think about capturing this moment and also projecting ahead a little bit. And it's been a very exciting week here at Monaco 24. We have a new show out, The Concierge. It's our travel-themed show. So we'll play two items for the show for you. We start uh, with this one from our Helsinki correspondent, Patri Burtsov. This week, Patri visits the historic city of Purvu on Finland's southern coast, one of the country's most beloved destinations. Charming and colorful wooden houses line the picturesque streets of Porvos, old town, whose streets offer the visitors lovely small boutiques, cafes and bistros. Porvo, one of the oldest towns in Finland, is a popular tourism destination, despite being located just a short drive from the capital Helsinki on Finland's southern coast, Porvo feels distinctly rural and quaint and is the perfect escape for those looking for a break from hectic city life. Located in a century-old Art Nouveau building on the city's main square, Runa Hotel is the city's most popular and loved hotel. It was the second hotel in Finland to be included in the Design Hotels Alliance and attracts visitors from both Finland and abroad with its beautiful interiors, Nordic charm and local art. Hi! Hi, Petri. Welcome to Runa Hotel Porvo. Oh, welcome back. Thank you so much. Glad to have you here with us. Hi, my name is Erkka Hirvonen and I'm the uh, GM of Runo Hotel Porvo and one of the owners. We are part of the Design Hotels Alliance as the second hotel in Finland. So the design since the beginning was playing a very crucial role for us because we really wanted to represent the Finnish culture and design being a very big part of Finnish culture. Actually, Porvo is a, we call it small countryside town, a very old historical one, close to the Helsinki. Uh, so we want to really bring out and uh, represent also the the rustic the countryside feel of the destination, but at the same time with a modern twist. Hirvonen has worked for some of Dubai's top hotels and upon his return to Finland chose Porvo as the site of his new project. Here's why. First of all, you know, the history and the beautiful, cozy, cute old town itself. It is visually uh, a gorgeous place and especially it's next to the river where you have these red river houses, you know, just mirroring the water. But with the second second thing, what we have here, which we are very famous for, is the restaurant scene. I would say that, you know, the Porvo is considered an almost profile like the casual dining, let's say the casual San Sebastian of Finland. So we have beautiful 8 to 10 fantastic restaurants within 500 meter radius so literally it's a steps away from our uh, hotel door no hotel in finland is complete without an in-house sauna and runo hotel has one too of course despite being a modern design hotel runo's sauna experience is similar to that of a traditional countryside sauna which all Finns love. You know, the Finnish sauna culture usually combines two elements. It's usually water, 
meaning a lake, whether cold or hot, usually cold, uh, and the sauna. So obviously, and it's in our attic, so we couldn't really build a swimming pool there. Uh, so we, first of all, built beautiful, large, massive, very great sauna with the floor-to-ceiling windows, uh, and in the future it will be open terrace, so you will actually see from the sauna over the whole beautiful old town. And the second element of water, we built this ice-cold water bucket on the wall that you actually pull from the rope on top of you. So instead of putting the cold water or the chill pool on the floor, we put it actually on the wall. I set out to explore Porvo and its charming 15th century old town. Soon my tote bag was filled with artisanal chocolates and licorice that Porvo is famous for, as well as some great Finnish design. Porvo, of course, is much more than just a historic old town. Visitors can go fishing and paddling in its river or hiking and skiing in its forests. Runo Hotel even organizes guided tours during which the visitors can go berry and mushroom picking in Porvo's forests. For restaurants, Monocle recommends Salt, Sinne and Sikapelle. And of course, my own favorite, Vor, where I decided to head next. Hey, do you still have the mallard on the menu? Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Okay, I will definitely go for that. It's my favorite. Hi, uh, my name is Tiko Lehto. We are at uh, restaurant War here in Porvo. Uh, at the moment, we have one of the main ingredients on our menu is local wild pike perch that we use whole. The whole cutting fish using all the parts, tongues, uh, fins, uh, fillets and everything, cheek, bo- cheek, cheek meat and everything and... Another one is that we are currently working is uh, Finnish mallard that we use also the whole whole bird. Then it was time to head back to my base at Runa Hotel and try out its famous cocktail bar. I sat at the hotel's 12 meter long marble bar and decided to go for their signature cocktail. Hi, my name is Yomi. I'm a head partner at Runo Hotel, and this is our favorite cocktail, Runo Clover Club. It is easy to understand why Porvo is one of Finland's most loved cities. It's the perfect small-town getaway with rich history, colorful architecture, high-quality food and drink, and lots of things to do in and around the town. For Monocle in Porvo, I'm Petri Burtsov. And now another item from the concierge. This week we hear from Monaco's Thomas Lewis. He sends us a letter from Miami. It was a day or two after my birthday last November in Miami. And one night at around 10 o'clock in the evening, the festivities having well ebbed by then, we opted to go for a gentle stroll through the neighbourhood before turning in for the day. Our path took us along the Miami Beach boardwalk, which snakes north for seven miles from the southern tip of the neighbourhood all the way up to 87th Street. It's lined by the neighbourhood on one side and the sea on the other. And despite it being fairly deep into the evening, the air was warm, the dark sky was clear and the boardwalk was full of life. There were couples sharing gelatos on the benches that are dotted along the route. Teenagers crammed onto scooter rentals whizzed by. Cyclists passed us too. Dates held hands as they wandered beneath the warm and dim lamplights that lined the route. 
and one pair of friends, who were walking a dog at the time, each had a fresh cocktail in their hands as they strolled along the walkway. Boardwalks were first conceived in the US in the 1870s, and they still evoke something pretty specific about beachside towns and cities across the United States. A raised walkway of wooden planks, usually lined on one flank by amusement parks, food and novelty stands and other kitscher attractions of the oceanfront, on the other, the sand and the sea. Miami Beach's boardwalk, or beach walk as it's become known to some in the neighbourhood, does something different. Well, it isn't made of boards, first of all. It's been paved in sections along its length. And the curves of the path are fringed by beach plant life. And the route itself gives way to parks, public showering spots, a mussel beach and offshoot walkways onto the beach itself. It took a decade to overhaul the beach walk. Its final stretch was formally completed last summer. But as a whole, it's a refresh of the idea of the boardwalk itself, in that it's not simply a walkway through the novelties of the seaside. It's a public space on which life unfolds, as much for those who live in the area as it is for those just passing through. So the next time you find yourself in South Beach, Miami, be sure to take an evening stroll along the boardwalk down by the sea. For Monocle, I'm Thomas Lewis. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. And I am getting very excited for Eurovision. I got my ticket in hands, and this time my global countdown was not top five of a single country, but in fact of a single city. I've looked at the top artists from Liverpool, some wonderful classics in there. In about two months' time, I'll be heading to Liverpool, which is hosting the Eurovision Song Contest tropical. this year. Very tropical paradise there. Uh, actually, I've been to uh, Liverpool just for half a day, but I'm very curious. I know the city has an incredible music history, so I've decided uh, to look at the top five, let's say, artists and songs from Liverpool. I mean, there's been, there's been so much to choose. So, by the way, this is just from my head, by the way. It's not like an official chart, I, I have I was to gonna say. say. I was going to head off any complaints or correspondence directly. Yes. This is very much a personal take. This is today's. Tomorrow it could be different. There's one or two I think we're pretty sure would always be on there. You can probably imagine where we're going to wind up. But this is what hits you on a gut level today. Uh, where do we start? Well, we're going to start on a very good note. Uh, it's a band that being formed in Liverpool back in 1989. And I know they had bigger hits than the one we were playing. But I love this cover they did. This is uh, The Lightning Seeds with You Showed Me. Fernando, I don't want to give the game away when it comes to my own vintage, but that 
it strikes a few heavy nostalgia chords for the mid to late-ish 90s. Perhaps 96, but were you doing 96? Oh, Tom? best not to talk about that on the record. <laughs> and, and this song, I have to say, is a cover from a classic track by the Turtles. But I think mm. it's very hard to, get, to have a cover track that perhaps is almost as good as the original. Oh, you are being a controversialist today, Fernando. Yes. And, you know, I, I, did, I decided not to choose Three Lions. Of course, it was a number one hit in the UK by the Lightning Seeds and it keeps coming back to it the charts. It was a collab. It was a collab, That wasn't exactly. all Liverpool. That was a, exactly. that was a, a, whole, a whole national effort. Um, what's a number four? Well, I ask you, I kind of know this one. And this is an interesting track because obviously it's like super nostalgic 80s synth fest. And it, again, it's had these like re- mini renaissances over the years past, including in a film that I think you and I both very much enjoy. Tell, tell our audience what I'm talking about. Exactly. So, of course, uh, Dead or Alive. I mean, this song is such a massive hit worldwide. And I agree with you, Tom. It keeps coming back to the charts because of films like The Wedding Singer, I believe, right? Classic. Uh, a classic film there. Uh, and also, you know, unfortunately, Pete Burns, when he died as well, the song returned to the charts. I remember, you know, when I discovered the song in a nightclub in Sao Paulo, I've never heard of it before. And I was like, oh my God, this is magic. And since then, I became a big fan of... Well, without giving away your vintage, so when would that have been then, Faye? Well, approximately. Late 90s, early noughties, something okay. like that. No, early noughties, actually. I'm not okay. that old. Hopefully the date <laughs> was the only naughty thing about it, Fernando. Uh, so remind us, what are we hearing next? It's Dead or Alive. You spin me around like a record. Tell you my love of me, actually, but when I moved to the UK, I remember it kind of made me feel nostalgic because I, I believe Pete Burns was on Celebrity Big Brother, which at the time was quite a big, big deal here in the UK. It, it was. He was. That is so good. How is that only number number four? I mean, because there's better stuff actually happening. To be honest, number three, I think not many people perhaps might know then. I mean, perhaps if you're a fan of electropop, you do. But for me, it's special. And I wanted a little bit of variety here. Mm-hmm. here. Not just the obvious ones. Uh, but this band again, an electropop band from uh, formed in 1999. I remember that was the age of the electro clash, like an electro movement. And they were one of the best bands. They're still around. I reviewed their album this year. Um uh, from Monaco actually a magazine but this is one of their biggest hits it's Lady Tron with 17 Fernando, I'm almost overwhelmed by the sheer power of synth that you're serving up to me. God, I, I'm overwhelmed as well. And can I be honest, I find this song quite melancholic. I mean, they only want you when you're 17. When you're 21, you're no fun. I don't know. It's about the, the oh, aging process. But yeah, it's, I don't know, maybe I'm reading too much into it. But this has weirdly become something of a thematic. Nostalgia, oh, the God. quest for lost times. And if, you're, if you want a nostalgia fest, Faye... 
I mean, number two is going to serve it up by the bucket load. But it's nostalgia, Tom. But I was looking at the video again. I think it's still so current. And I think the song is brilliant. I mean, the band is brilliant. Uh, and again, they are from Liverpool, I have to add here. It's Frankie Goes to Hollywood. We'll talk about the song. I mean, but it's such an iconic song. And I love that the video is so controversial and cool at the same time, you know, because sometimes it can be controversial, but not cool. And they manage to be both. Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Relax. The debauchery, I love it. I mean, Fernando, that is a stone-cold classic. Even before you've got to the top of the pyramid this week, I'm going to say, in terms of actual legitimate musical quality, by any measure, this is the best global countdown that you've ever devised oh my God. on this program. I'm feeling emotional, Tom, but this song, I mean, what an incredible tune, I have to say. And again, it's the kind of song that never dies. I mean, just look at Zoolander, uh, the <laughs> film as well. I try not to if <laughs> no, I can I mean, Well, actually, Zoolander is quite good. Uh, and again, the BBC banned the song, but actually people were interested because when the song was released, it, it was not like an immediate success. I think mm. it charted at number 67 in the charts, but then slowly the BBC said, oh, we can't play this. Well, it was classic, Fernando. As soon as they made a massive song and dance about it and banned it this was like mary whitehouse era the song it never looked it never looked back and that video is still kind of pretty out there which uh, the fact that that ever got broadcast in when was that like 80, 84, 84 83 yeah. 84 it's and, pretty amazing and so you know what if this video is released today i actually think it would cause the same controversy yeah, I don't I, I don't know for you know it's quite strange that right it's not uh, what's the word it hasn't sort of it diminished in terms of impact over time. Love Frankie Johnson. We're all emotional. Holly Johnson, absolute legend. Uh, one of my, I think one of the key post, uh, post 60s and early 70s Liverpool musical exponents, Holly Johnson in my view. I'm so glad, Tom, that you but said who that. Came, who, who came before Faye? Who lit the way for all of these legends that we've been hearing from? I mean, I have, even if you don't like, then you have to respect because they are so associated with the city of Liverpool. He, they they needed to be in the top five and they needed to be a number one. Uh, I'm sorry, even if you're not a Beatles fan, but they are, I mean, such an iconic band. I mean, they represent Liverpool, but they represent the United Kingdom, let's be honest. I know, I know a lot of uh, people, they say, oh, I want to visit Liverpool precisely because uh, of the Beatles. And the song I chose, Tom, is a song from 1967. Uh, it's Penny Lane, which is, in fact, a street in Liverpool. And I was reading, uh, Paul McCartney wrote this track. That's where he used to spend his childhood, uh, you know, with George Harrison, with John Lennon as well. It's a very nostalgic track. Uh, and what, about, what about Ringo? Don't leave him out. Well, He's still knocking about. <laughs> yeah, Ringo as well. You know, why not? <laughs> Sorry, Ringo. Uh, but let's play a little bit of Penny Lane, a beautiful track by the Beatles. And the Maybe I'll pay a visit to Penny Lane. You should do, Fernando. I want to know from our listeners, did anyone listen to that top five 
and fail to sing along with at least one. I just don't believe it's possible. Exactly. and it, Maybe it, dance it, along as well, depending on what you're doing. They're not all, if you're driving, obviously, something like that, obviously. But. They're all global hits. I mean, we're, we're here, we're here being... Monsters. We're being ultra-specific with the city of Liverpool, but everyone in the world have listened to at least three or four of those tracks. Now, Fernando, let's bring things right up to date. You've mentioned why we were in Liverpool for this special edition, and... Breaking news alert, there is more news to do with, well, the reason why we're, why we're in Liverpool today. Exactly. The UK uh, launched, uh, well, released their, their entry for Eurovision this morning. And I think we should play a clip of it. And you know what, Tom, my first impression, a very good tune. And I think the UK is taking very seriously uh, who they sent to Eurovision. I think last year we had, you know, uh, the spaceman, right? I mean, he was, the, he was uh, I believe, second uh, just after Ukraine. And I think May Miller, she, I think she will do very well. This, is, this track is called I Wrote a Song. Let's have a listen. I know it depends, doesn't it? Sometimes we, the British public, get to anoint our artists. This was selected. I don't know. So I think they tend to do better. I don't want to diss the public, but they tend to do better when they leave it to the experts. I agree, because the British public chose Scooch, I remember, which, I mean, it was kind of nul point on Eurovision. I think the song is very efficient. I'm not sure if it's a winner. And it's about cheating as well, which is a big trend. Just look, remember, we're talking about Shakira here. Mm -hmm. So she said, you know, he cheated on me. You know what I did? I wrote a song. And for food neighbourhoods, as usual, we have a lovely recipe. This time, from one of the UK's rising culinary talents, Alex Webb. Hi, I'm uh, Alex Webb I'm from Alex Webb on Park Lane at the Intercontinental. Um, we've just been opened up in October and I thought to give a nice recipe for you to listen to. Quite a simple one, it's just uh, tempura broccoli. So tempura broccoli is actually on our menu at the moment. Um, so it's really, really simple. It's, uh, I like to use long stem broccoli. So just make sure that you chop off the ends and give them a good old wash. And then from, from there is for the, for the batter. So we use flour. So you could use 100 grams of flour. You could then use 100 grams of sparkling water. Make sure it's like ice cold. Uh, a pinch of salt in there. I'm going to actually add a few ice cubes in there as well, just to keep it nice and cold. And a little bit of corn flour, just to kind of thicken it almost. Uh, and make sure there's obviously salt and pepper in there. And you can give it a good whisk up and make sure it's like a nice kind of almost like a pancake consistency batter. Once you have that, you have your broccoli. Um, so the broccoli you can uh, blanch. So obviously you have raw broccoli, you want to cook it quite quickly. So a little tip when cooking broccoli is to have your water boiling. Uh, and also you can put, put as much salt as possible in the water because any green vegetable absorbs the amount of salt that it needs. Um, so you could by accident put too much in and actually the broccoli would say, no, I've had enough salt. Um, and only take what it needs. But for blanching, you want to do two to three minutes just to kind of soften it up, make sure it's nice and green, uh, and you can put it into some ice water. Um, so you've got your broccoli and you've got your batter. Uh, once the broccoli is cooled down, you can uh, you just basically dip it into the batter, and you can either have a deep fryer or like a pan of hot oil. Uh, it needs to be like 180 degrees on the oil. 
dip your broccoli in the batter and then into the deep fryer, nice and crispy, three to four minutes. And it's a lovely kind of simple dish, especially in January if you've had too much to eat at Christmas time. And into the oven just to keep it warm. And it's a nice plate of tempura broccoli. And you can finish it off with some kind of fresh chilies and some spring onions um, and a little bit of olive oil over the top. Um, nice and simple and delicious. And for Toast Stories this week, Gregory Scruggs talk us through the various ways the park strip has been used since the birth of Alaska's largest city, Anchorage. Winters run long in Anchorage, Alaska, where the average temperature stays below zero degrees Celsius well through March. The deep freeze in Alaska's largest city means ice skaters and hockey players can enjoy an extended season at the outdoor ice rink along the downtown public space known as the Park Strip. This green space, green at least during Anchorage's brief summer, is 13 blocks long by one block wide. Its official name is Delaney Park, after an early city mayor. But in common parlance, Anchorageites call this patch the Park Strip. While modest in dimension, the Park Strip has played an outsized role in the young city's history. Anchorage was founded just over 100 years ago as a railroad construction camp in the then U.S. territory of Alaska. At first, Anchorage was nothing more than a tent encampment, but the American frontier mentality encouraged settlers to build an orderly city, and quickly. The 13 blocks of the Park Strip were actually the original township plat, though town founders soon moved the first city blocks elsewhere and incorporated in 1920. Instead, they left the Park Strip as a firebreak, a cleared stretch of land that would buffer the nascent city against a potential forest fire coming from the outskirts of town. In 1922, the firebreak was officially incorporated into the city of Anchorage to serve a wide range of needs for a frontier-era settlement, quote, for fire protection and park purposes, and to furnish a suitable field for aeroplanes. Legend has it that during a July 1923 work party to further clear the strip of tree stumps, tractors dug up bottles of booze, an enticing buried treasure during the Prohibition era. Allegedly, not much work got done for the rest of the day. For park purposes, the strip became a golf course. While hardly the old course at St. Andrews, the rough and patchy nine holes had a claim to fame as the northernmost links in the U.S. More practically, for the better part of a decade, the park strip served as Anchorage's runway. For isolated Alaskan towns, air service is an essential link to the rest of the world. The 420-meter landing strip coupled with nearby power lines and prevailing strong north winds, tested the mettle of local pilots. By the 1930s, air traffic migrated to a better location. The streets surrounding the early park strip were also home to Anchorage's original red light district. A round of golf and a visit to the brothel before catching a bush plane embarking from a questionable runway? Sounds like a pre-statehood Alaskan holiday. Statehood, meanwhile, gave the park strip another raison d'etre. The 1958 decision to admit the 49th U.S. state is arguably the most significant moment in Alaskan history. The Park Strip hosted a bonfire, an odd choice perhaps for a firebreak, that attracted a good number of the city's nearly 45,000 residents who gathered to celebrate joining the Union. By that point, the Park Strip had gone from seedy to stately, at least by Alaskan standards, with the Municipal Parks Department installing the first proper recreational facilities. 
Today, there are softball fields, football pitches, volleyball and tennis courts, horseshoe pits, and the ice rink. The park strip, in short, has become a traditional park. Anchorage also grew into an international gateway for the largest U.S. state by area and the headquarters city for the state's sizable energy, minerals, and natural resources sector. The park strip has in turn taken on the trappings of a traditional civic space, with memorials to everything from Alaska's war veterans killed in action to civil rights leader Martin Luther King Jr. The plaque honoring Pope John Paul II stirs many memories. He visited Anchorage in 1981 and gave an outdoor mass in frigid February, on the park strip, of course. From prostitution to the papacy, these humble 13 blocks have witnessed, and themselves embodied, Anchorage's evolution from frontier settlement to modern city. And on the Robinist this week, it was all about sport and cities. And this one is very interesting. We're in Buenos Aires to explore how the city's sports clubs are bringing communities together as anchors for social life. It's approaching midnight, and a queue has formed outside a traditional sports club in the centre of Buenos Aires. Fashionable youngsters on a night out are making a point of waiting for a table at the canteen of Club Eros. By day, the indoor football court adjacent is filled with youth teams and coaches cheering them on. These members clubs, that offer a range of different activities from billiards and chess to the beautiful game and basketball, are absolutely thriving, particularly at mealtimes across inner-city neighbourhoods. It's in part because of the homely and affordable menus that are available to passers-by at both lunch and dinner. I began in the Eros Club kitchen, speaking to head chef Oscar Juarez. He was preparing breaded beef cuts, or milanesas, in a large frying pan as I walked in. This club has a beautiful story. It was always privately owned and never received any external funding from politicians or help from the business sector. It was driven by its members. It isn't particularly big, so we can manage independently from the membership fees and by renting out the pitch to other people in the area. It is a club, but anyone can come in, take a seat, watch some sport and eat well. Surrounded by fast food, vegan and resto options in the district of Palermo, the buffet-style menu at Eros is hearty, with dishes served at simple wooden tables. Trophies and football strips line the shelves above. Looking down at the price list... I almost can't quite believe the size of the portions you get for your pesos. Annual inflation in Argentina is running at just under 100%. Oscar tried to explain how he manages to keep prices accessible. I wake up at 7am and buy everything for the day. I keep my same providers, the same ones who have sold me the eggs and the meat for 32 years. What's important is that we offer good quality meals to our customers. I look after my clients who give me life and that's what ultimately gives me pleasure and makes it all worth it. Those who no longer live in the area also come down to eat here. That's a big part of it. We have more or less 40 to 50 covers at lunch and 100 each night. It's the same kind of food that your mother or grandmother prepared. And that's why I'm confident about this business, as long as I'm around to do the cooking. And the club is certainly popular. Despite experiencing strict lockdowns throughout the pandemic, and challenges like rising rental prices, Oscar, who keeps the kitchen open every day of the week, said the flow of customers has been constant. 
This club is in Palermo, one of the most sought-after areas of the city, and of course it has its costs, but we can cover them. The pandemic was very hard, we have an extremely loyal clientele that responded immediately on reopening though. And we fight. Me and my son, together, we work hard and we feel we've overcome a very difficult period. Sabine Kastner is an urban planner from Germany who works in Buenos Aires and has been looking into the history of these social sports clubs. It's mainly based on the concepts and roots of European immigration to the South American continent by the end of the 18th and beginning of the 19th century. On the one hand, it was through English settlers who had a great impact on Argentinians' industry and infrastructure back then. And so the upper classes of the time held a big admiration for England and their founding of sports and workers' clubs, which were very popular in England back then. And so you can kind of say that they were the initiators of a sort of club movement in Argentina. And then on the other hand, there was both national and international immigration, mainly from southern European countries at the beginning of the First World War and industrial change and industrial revolution. And so that caused the capital of Buenos Aires to grow very rapidly. And within a, a short period of time, Buenos Aires became a very lively, diverse place where different social groups with different origins, economic conditions, social positions and ideas of leisure settled and sort of strengthened their ties to a new place by gathering in their cultural bubble and in their circles and by bringing their customs and ways of lives and values to a territory that was foreign to them. And so I guess kind of naturally they started to create these cultural and spatial hybrids that you can see in the spatialization of the social and sport clubs today. My grandparents actually met at one of these such English clubs in Buenos Aires back in the late 1940s, going to dances and watching sport. It ultimately led to a 60-year marriage and lifelong friends. Jump forward a few decades and Sabine gave her view on why they've survived. They are around... 20,000 clubs in total in the entire country, of which around 250 of them are located in the small-scale neighborhoods of the capital. So they really are an integral part of the Argentinian social life. I mean, that number is very unique around the world, and just by its quantity, they are very present in the city. And so every one of these clubs is very closely linked to their neighborhood and creates a feeling of belonging for its citizens and users, you know, kind of as spaces and infrastructures of care, exchange and togetherness. And they have therefore a very multi-layered structure of social, civic and cultural functions and tasks, which ties the institutions to the society on many levels. So by implementing themselves within the neighborhood, the clubs are constantly interacting within other facilities across the cities through sports tournaments and cultural events and one of these elements which is also very beautiful are the inexpensive canteens or restaurants that most of the clubs have and they kind of form the interface not only between the club members and the general urban society but also between the culinary traditions of Argentina and then the club's country of origin. One of the reasons why they've been so resilient in the past years within the many economic crises the country has been having is that they are being quite independent from politics. There was, for example, a situation within the recent years where during the neoliberal government of the past president Mauricio Macri, 
the majority of the cups, they were kind of pushed into debt through tariff increases and they kind of aimed to transform the institutions and profit-making enterprises through an increasing economization of sports. So a more direct connection to politics in a country like Argentina is sometimes not really positive in that sense. Closer towards downtown is one of the first billiard clubs in Argentina, on Avenida de Mayo. It opened in 1894, the same year the avenue was built. Over a coffee, local architect Juan Campanini talked about the layout of 36 billiards and what it means for porteños, the Buenos Aires locals. It looks like a regular coffee shop of Buenos Aires, but when you go downstairs, it's uh, underground full of these tables. So it's a very special place, That it's a very social place. Especially now we are here on Monday and afternoon. But if you come here on Friday or Saturday, it's full of people, full of sound. And it's very interesting how it's like an underground world in the middle of the center of Buenos Aires. The roots of this kind of space uh, come from the beginning of the century when the city was full of immigrants, but at the same time people that were living here from uh, several years. So all these different kinds of people met in these uh, places. In a way, it still has that spirit or that atmosphere of a place where all come together. So it's a really nice space because maybe it's not, you don't see natural light or the sky, but it, it works in a nice way, so it's a nice place at the end. It's in the middle of Avenida de Mayo, uh, four or three uh, blocks away from the Congreso, so it's like the, the center of the city. But yes, it's interesting that this is very particular because it's very like specific about a billiard, but it's not an exception. There are plenty of these spaces in the city in different places. Reinventing a social mecca, regardless of religion or age, and united by a decent meal, cup of coffee, and playing a game. It feels like Buenos Aires has a good thing going, keeping this tradition alive. And that's all we've got time for this week's edition of The Curator. The show was produced by David Stevens and presented by me, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Join us again next week. Thank you for listening. <laughs>